hello, and welcome to Catapult Network's Supercharging Innovation Podcast. My name is Jeremy Silver, Chair for this year of the Catapult Network. In this series, I'm talking with some of the UK's top industry and academic leaders, business people and parliamentarians, to get their views on the future of innovation. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Maya Pindeus. Maya is a human experience designer, architect, and an engineer with a deep passion for human-machine interaction. Working at the intersection of engineering, robotics, and user experience, her work has been widely recognized across the industry with multiple awards and publications in Forbes, Fast Company, the European Commission Starts Prize, and others, as well as top rankings as leading female founder in the AI and technology industries. Maya holds degrees from both Imperial College London and the Royal College of Art, and led commercial strategy and user experience at a number of companies before ultimately starting her own business, Humanizing Autonomy. As CEO, she leads Humanizing Autonomy's company strategy and oversees a world-class team of commercial and technical and product talent. Maya, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. So I'm going to plunge straight in because I'm sure that everyone is always intrigued by the name of your company. To ask you just to give us a few minutes on uh, what does your company do? Um, happily, well, humanizing autonomy, you know, we chose an explicit name, I'd like to say. It's really around improving human-machine interactions, making sure that any machine is able to interact around people as automation really reaches full adoption, as we see more artificial intelligence, more automation really being introduced into our daily lives, into our everyday lives. When we started humanizing autonomy, this is all about creating what we call a global standard for human-machine interactions. We are a computer vision company. We built behavior AI, behavior AI that is able to understand and infer human behavior and how people relate with the environments from any video, any image really will do. And with that, help machines, help um, AI systems, help automation interact better with people, making them safer, more productive, more reliable, more trustworthy, and more ethical really. So it's really all you need is a camera. Um, we feed into any camera, whether it's your consumer device, whether it's in a car, on a CCTV, very focused on the urban environment today. We can really feed into any camera in any city to make cities safer and you know, more enjoyable. Give us an example of, of um, one of your customers and how they've used your technology. So we're heavily involved in a, essentially shaping the urban environment. So for example, we work with a uh, various uh, transport networks, um, fleet operators and device manufacturers. For instance, uh, Transport for London is a partner of ours where we feed into video telematics, dash cams or driver assistance systems. That means that our camera-based system plugged into a truck, into a bus, into a car, for instance, is able to really anticipate what any pedestrian, cyclist, vulnerable road user is likely to do and if there's risk associated with that. We then help understand, is there a likelihood of an accident, for instance, is something dangerous likely to happen? Is someone distracted in the road uh, environment? And with that, the, our customers can take action. We can prevent accidents. We can help really anticipate what is likely to happen. So that's a really, you know, uh, focused use case on really bringing accidents rates down, really helping promote vision zero in urban environments, right. in moving vehicles, for instance. And the same applies to roadside infrastructure where we're active in CCTV and smart infrastructure cameras. So you're, you're providing predictive analytics in real time yes. to operators. Amazing. How, how fascinating is that? How big is the business today? 
We're about 30 people uh, now entering a new growth phase. We're really excited about hiring at all levels. Today, we're about 30 people, you know, very focused around strong IP creation, a lean commercial team. And it's been a really, really fun journey so far. Excellent. Are you, so you're seeking investment at the moment, are you? We are entering a growth phase, which is really Excellent. interesting. Excellent. That's, that's super exciting. So let me take you back to the beginning, though, and ask you, how did you get started with, with humanising autonomy? I mean, I mentioned that, that you'd been in some other companies and looking at things from another point of view, but what drew you to, to starting your own business? I met my two co-founders, uh, Runeg and Leslie, who was the product and technology at Imperial College, who were uh, studying really, really exciting master called innovation design engineering. And it really led us to look at the interaction between people and the road environment, people and, and machines, really, assuming that everything with a camera and wheels is a machine um, in a lot of detail. We were puzzled that no one was talking about people. Everyone was talking about artificial intelligence. Everyone was talking about autonomous cars, um, automation potentially being solved. We didn't believe that's true. And it turned out not to be true. It turned out to be the people, the human element, be crucial for any level of adoption. So that drew us to starting our own business. In terms of our personal background or my personal background, I had a journey from architect. I'm an architect turned interaction designer, um, design engineer. I've been always looking at people's interaction with urban environments from different levels. One had the macro scales, looking and understanding how complex and fragile cities really are, but then also the smaller scale, looking at the ambiguity, at the complexity of interactions when we look at a person and their environment, how they interact. This is what led me to move into humanizing autonomy. It's so interesting, the, the sense that you could equip computers and machines with a sufficient intelligence to be able to predict behaviours. We usually find it quite difficult to predict one another's behaviours, let alone to expect a computer to do that. What do you think the, the sort of limits at the moment to this are and where do you think this goes? Well, from a vision perspective, we see humanising autonomy powering the interactions behind the scenes. You know, a few years from now, not being able to walk through any city construction site, manufacturing place, more retail space without seeing or experiencing our technology behind the scenes, enabling the interaction. So that's the scale. The scale is any camera. When it comes to the limits of this, or what is what this really enables, um, what we really specialize in is understanding and inferring complex behaviors from video. As human beings, yes, it's difficult to understand one another's behavior, but we're really good at computing and, and inferring what is likely to happen from what we see. So there's this statistical calculations going on in our head, and this really helps us to do a pretty good job. For a machine, here you can extract what is happening, but it's really complex to infer. And we've really focused on the journey from extracting, understanding, observing, to inferring what is happening behind the scenes and what is likely to happen next. And the applications for that really are, you know, wherever there's automation, this is required. So you really are at the very leading edge of, of innovation and, and creating extraordinary new approaches to quite familiar problems in a way. You talk about hiring. Where do you draw your talent from? One of the first things we've done when we started the company is really also start focusing, communicating on, on the employer branding, on the piece, you know, communicating to potential team members, help understand the problem, help communicate the problem. So today we have a really, really good pool of, of inbound candidates where we publish a new role. It's usually very, very good talent, good pool to draw from. In the early days, of course, it was our networks that helped us promote it. You know, we're very focused on, on, on promoting diversity in, in technology, making sure that our teams are diverse, not just gender and nationalities, also age diversity and so on. And I think that really making sure that this genuine focus around that really helped us 
position ourselves from a from also from an employer perspective. And where do you draw the talent from, though? Is it from other businesses? Is it from academia? Is it from other parts of, of the economy or the world? It, it's a combination of, on one hand, we are a deep tech business. So that means that having really, really strong IP generating stuff, people that are the leading edge of computer vision of artificial intelligence are super important to our business. So these colleagues join us from a variety of sources, whether it's from academia or other businesses, really. But they all have in common on the technical side is a very, very strong interest in in shaping the future of AI. And we're really happy that we're able to communicate it so well to prospective team members. It's interesting that the, the UK has an amazing reputation for its academic AI work. According to some indexes, rates only after the US and China for its academic publications in AI. But we haven't quite seen that level of success uh, in the development of businesses. I mean, there are some great celebrated businesses like DeepMind, of course, but not very many of them compared with how successful we are in academic publication. Why do you think that is? I think to build, you know, large scale celebrated business, you need somehow to sky approach. You need to look at innovation, not at a short return on investment time frame, but really on a longer time frame, because ultimately scale comes with time and it also comes with jumping on, 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 on daring opportunities and really, really focusing on them. The US has been great at this. China is being very, very good at this. UK and Europe um, tend to have a legacy of a slightly conservative look at companies. And that's maybe good at a, at, a, at a smaller scale, but it's really around creating leadership and worldwide leadership or competitiveness when it comes to company building and, and promoting. That is, I believe, not the most sustainable approach. Is your aspiration of your business to grow it to a significant size then, or are you looking to try and develop something um, highly acquirable by a big tech company and then exit? <laughs> No, it is. It really is around, you know, uh, this global standard we're talking about. We want to see humanizing autonomy, AI powering any device, any camera. So that's a really multi-geography, multi-industry approach. So really making sure that we reach scale is super important. Fantastic. So let me ask you, we first came across one another in the context of the Digital Catapults Machine Intelligence Garage program, which is a, a support program and an acceleration program for AI companies. Uh, just tell me a bit about your the challenges that you've experienced in developing your ideas, you know, at the earliest stage, from early concept through to commercialization. How much support is there, do you think? And is there enough? Support is, is so important, particularly in the early days when you have an idea, maybe a prototype, and you try to understand what the right path on your journey would be for you. So my own experience uh, when we started humanizing autonomy was all around finding networks, talking to people. And I think talking to people is the most important thing. If if ideas happen in isolation, there's a lot to be lost. So in our case, several support structures, of course, the catapults, uh, machine intelligence garage, particularly um, was super helpful when it comes to uh, really tech development and support there. Um, there were institutions like Capital Enterprise, of course, the universities, Imperial College, and so on. And I think we're in a good way, I would say the UK is in a, good, in a good path when it comes to support structures for early stage founders. There's obviously always more that can be done, but what's most important is to encourage everyone having an idea to really, really talk and reach out. Um, I think this is how, how they actually become more tangible. So do you think there are things we need to do to improve that, to really ensure that that kind of business mindset is enabled in, in as many people as possible? I mean, what else can, should we be doing, do you think? Well, I, I think so. I mean, I started at, at a young age. There's a lot to be improved at education, secondary education, and so on as well, to implant curiosity in people. Um, the other thing is, you know, I'm familiar with networks, uh, founding networks when it comes to universities, Imperial, Oxford, Cambridge, UCL, and so on. And then there we always felt we were 
very well welcomed and very well taken care of, probably democratizing it more and making it more accessible to a wider community of founders of, of people that might not have access to, you know, these university networks, for instance, I think would be very beneficial in terms of fostering more innovation. It's really interesting. The role of the university as, as the creator of an ecosystem around itself is so interesting. And yet at the same time, the numbers of universities that we've got that are actually really doing that very effectively is, could probably increase, I guess. Yeah. Is, is, is that what you're suggesting? I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's a innovation pools and founding networks. I mean, quite a few universities have them, but they're always focused by selected few if you're in these networks great you know we were always lucky to be in this network we started at imperial we had a great network team players from cambridge and other universities that's a great start point but if you don't have that and you still have a great idea and you want people to listen to you and to um, support you i think there's more to be done but what about the investment side of things do you think that the kind of the beginnings of that so the earlier stages of funding that are coming through from both the private sector and the public sector are we in the right place with those, do you think? Do you think that the that the kind of level of public funding is helping the private investment community? How do those things play together, do you think? I think that the level of public funding can really be increased. I think there's there's good things that happen, you know, within Innovate UK funding and so but I think the barriers are high. Barriers are high. Um, that applies to Innovate UK funding, to EU funding and so on, particularly in the early stages where you're really trying to navigate the landscape. I don't believe it's as accessible as it may seem, or as it may want to be, or intend to be. When it comes to private funding, we're seeing a lot of kind of pre-seed seed investment in the UK. So I think this is really going into the right direction. Uh, I think from the time we were at this stage, uh, you know, three years, four years ago to now, I think there has been quite a lot of increase. So that's that's great to see. In terms of public funding, public-private partnerships, um, I think there's there's level four, you know, there's always more that can be done. And in terms of industry adoption and of uh, companies themselves, uh, getting their heads around the use of AI, finding the right starting point. Is that a challenge? I mean, when you're going out and presumably you're engaging all kinds of companies across a whole range of different sectors and transport and urban environments is obviously a, a key focus for you. But what's your experience in terms of how traditional industry is responding to the, the opportunity of AI? Yeah, well, everyone is always very interested in AI and knows they want to use it, but it, every startup is resource constrained. Every startup is to find the right path as quickly as possible and when it comes to customer acquisition then it's around understanding who is waiting to see adoption happen and then essentially jump on the train or who is actually proactive who are the customers who are the organizations are really proactive and want to feel competitive pressure feel that they need to act now um, and and you'll be surprised you know some of the very traditional seeming uh, industries or companies are often the ones that are moving really quickly, whereas it's surprising often where you find that match. Do you think that the level of interest from industry is balanced by the level of investment that industry is making? Or do you think that industry is still finding it challenging to make investments in this area? I think there have been a lot of investments in this area. So very often the way it works is that an industry, um, well, a corporate may have a separate fund that does uh, investments in the area and then aims to connect the company invested into the corporate, essentially. So I think a lot of investment have been done, um, but there's probably, I mean, AI is definitely still on a watch list for a lot of these. When it comes to working with corporates, I think every startup goes through the pilots, POC phase and so on. And then it's really around making sure 
that you um, again understand who the right customer is for your solution at this time so that you move on um, to, to kind of wider and bigger engagements and that's something that obviously is true to us as even as you turn pro to every AI starter make sure that you really navigate that steps very very consciously but that's not me, every corporate is ready yeah I mean everybody has a challenge in, in selling a new product obviously mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is, is uh, when I was asking about investment, I was also thinking about the, the sort of investment that the companies are making themselves into their mm. own businesses mm -hmm. in adopting the technology. And I'm just wondering, you know, it was really interesting to say to hear you talk about the, the sort of the early adopters mm -hmm. and the sort of the, the skill of, of identifying who they are and going for them. But do you think there's more that needs to be done to encourage more early adoption? Definitely. I mean, businesses need to understand, you know, the value that AI would bring. And very often this is internal investment or physically internal investment fluctuates, so things like COVID, things like, you know, external events that may move, you know, invest into different, to different phases. The other thing that I believe helps are, again, there where the public can have or the public-private partnerships can really have an impact in helping well, through projects, through innovation, helping businesses take their time to really understand how to use new technologies internally. Very often they're ready to do so, to explore, but sometimes need a bit of extra help. And I think public-private partnerships are exactly the sweet spot. And do, you, and do you think that your business has been held back at times because the companies that you've been engaging with just haven't had that level of understanding and, and haven't made enough internal investment themselves to be able to embrace what you're offering? Not necessarily. I think what we adopted very, very quickly is this level of uh, really making sure that we understand, you know, on one hand, our pipeline and where to navigate first. There's a huge pool of companies that could use and will use that technology, but who will do it first? So I don't think it's holding back, but it's about on both sides, making sure that you're smart about how to approach it. I think that that's the key part. Not everyone will be, particularly when it comes to really, you know, new technology that serves a really existing market at the same time creates a new one. It is really important to be quite quick around um, understanding who to go to first and who to work with first. Yes, absolutely. Now, I know that humanizing autonomy strives very explicitly to be inclusive and uh, to create equality as part of your core business values. Why is diversity so important? And why is this a priority for your business? If you want to build technology that changes society, the impact society, the people building it need to be I'm representing societies. It happens way too often, way too frequently, and it's quite, quite prevalent that only a small part of society is, is building technology and then essentially mapping it onto everyone else. We believe this approach is wrong. Particularly with humanizing autonomy is about helping machines understand people, all people. So that's essentially the first one was um, why diversity and inclusion is incredibly important. But then it's also around team culture. It's around creating a creative environment uh, where people learn from one another and learning from someone who's very like yourself uh, you know you can learn something but of course you will learn much more if you have people from different interdisciplinary backgrounds it means different studies different prior careers different nationalities uh, different cultural backgrounds we actually found that to be a huge enabler in their own company and it just makes an environment much more fun and inspiring to work at. And do you think that the, the kind of values that you're bringing in that way, are they, are they reflected in the value that you create in the business then? Do you think that, that those two things are absolutely hand in hand? Absolutely, yeah. That's definitely our intention. I would hope, I, I definitely would hope so. Ultimately, you, you build a business, you build a team, and that team essentially builds the technology that is then being brought to customers and ultimately the end customers, everyone, you or I. And in that sense, it's so important to be very, very conscious about 
how to build it. And there's a big responsibility in building a business, um, particularly these days. We're talking about AI, we're talking about ethics, we're talking about inclusive uh, teams, equal representation. There's a lot that needs to be done in our society. And I feel like when building a high growth business, there's a lot of responsibility and opportunity here as well. It's fantastic to hear you say that. And I, I mean, it's so interesting, obviously, that AI has the ability to translate a set of values so rapidly into all aspects of a product. Do you think about that when you're designing algorithms and you're thinking about the way in which the software itself is making assessments? Yes, where, absolutely. Where you have, I mean, how do you address issues like unconscious bias and so on? Yeah, there's a few ways to address it. It's a really important part. On one hand, um, we really focus on the ethical piece of AI. Ethics is a big word, right? But what does it mean with regards to algorithms? On one hand, it means that the data used is very diverse, is, is robust, is big, represents different environments, different situations, and is constantly quality assessed. So that's just one big part in order to preventing a certain unconscious bias. The other one is that AI traditionally is what people may call a black box, like one big model, not transparent, not really understandable. Again, we don't believe that's right. So we build a modular approach that is interpretable, where you can always understand the decision-making system. So those are things that are all built into the technology, decision-making, understanding, interpretability, the data that's being fed, and then, of course, how you practically work with privacy and tracking, tracing, and so on. So that's all pieces that are part of the software architecture, ultimately, and then how we incorporate ethics in, in how we build the technology. Absolutely fascinating. You've, you've obviously accumulated an incredible wealth of knowledge and experience, both of, of how to build your own business, but also the innovation ecosystem that you're uh, working within. Just as we come towards the end of this, what, what advice would you give to other early stage entrepreneurs who've got great ideas, but don't necessarily know where to go for support? I like to say, you know, be, be loud. Um, and what I mean by that, not shout around, but essentially um, <laughs> developing ideas in isolation just doesn't work. And what helped us so much, and we're still you know, students with an idea, considering just thinking of starting a company not really knowing how to do it what we've done is we spoke to everyone we reached out to potential customers we reached out to potential investors we started finding networks um, that would help us on this kind of early stages of the journey so i think the kind of be loud and test your ideas um, as early on as possible just don't be shy about it that's what helped us a lot and i hope it would help others too that sounds like brilliant advice to me I've got one last question for you, which I always ask at the end of uh, this podcast to all of my guests, which is uh, we've been talking a lot about innovation, about the leading edge of, of creative thinking. What's your favourite innovation? <laughs> What's my favourite innovation? That's a really, really good question. I may answer something very down to earth. For me, one of my favourite innovations in urban environments is public transportation. Something that helps connect people, connect communities, does not require a lot of machines, a lot of uh, pollution, a lot of space taking up in a city, but actually is efficient, is, is affordable and helps us get from A to B. So that's very, very down to earth. But I think that's something that's really on top of mind, particularly today, right? We're talking about sustainability, about making fast, you know, growing cities, um, um, urbanized environments, um, just better. I think that's an innovation is often forgotten. Really, really important. Brilliant response. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for joining us this week. And thank you to my guest, Maya Pindeus, for telling us all about the future of AI technology and the challenges of growing a business. Thanks a lot, Jeremy, for having me. That's all for today's Supercharging Innovation podcast. 
Thanks for listening. Join us again for the next podcast episode and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify. Other podcast distribution platforms are, of course, also available. Goodbye.